I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Working Scientist, the Nature Careers podcast. I'm Julie Gould. This podcast is about how universities in South Africa are changing to make sure that apartheid doesn't continue to affect doctoral researchers from any nation, colour or background. It's been 25 years since apartheid was officially abolished in South Africa. And yet even though all this time has passed, it still casts long shadows over the country, not just in the streets, but also in academia. Now, Jonathan Janssen, who is a professor of education at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, has studied how apartheid has impacted South African universities. So one of the things that has become very, very clear uh, to many of us is that the dramatic political change of 1994, South Africa gets democracy, apartheid is legally over, that that did not mean that education research, you know, economics, uh, etc., changes at the same pace. The main problem with this shadow from our distant past is people who haven't shifted, particularly in the large research universities, their understanding that there is something inherent in Indianness or coloredness or whiteness that predisposes people towards certain kinds of social, health and behavioural outcomes. Charity Kombe has experienced this division firsthand. She's originally from Zambia, one of South Africa's neighbouring countries, but moved to the University of Pretoria in South Africa to do a PhD and postdoc in higher education studies. So one of the things that struck me when I like arrived at University of Pretoria, it's like I think it's 55% whites, 45% blacks, and I noticed that people don't mingle a lot. So the whites will be alone in their own corner, the blacks will be alone in their own corner, and also the international students will be alone in their own, you know, corners. Like South Africans, the blacks, they like to stay on their own, the whites, they are also on their own, and then the international students try to mingle with the locals, but they find these divisions, so you also end up, like I was most of the time with my Zambian friends, or other people from other African countries, because... um, I think the division is still there, and even if people come in to try to bridge the gap, it's still embedded in that. And then also during my postdoc, I had the privilege of teaching a third-year class. Yeah, this was a compulsory course, so it had 
about 400 students. And I noticed the same pattern. So people were seated, the whites alone, the blacks alone, the international students alone. There was one like assignment I had to give, like a group assignment. And so I knew that it was sensitive for me to like tell them to group, to mingle. <laughs> yeah. So this is one thing I just said. I put it like in, in some kind of a joke. I said, okay, so the groups that I will make will consist of at least an international student, a white, a black, female, male. And they were like, no, no they protested. We want to work with people we are comfortable with. And basically it was an issue of color. Yeah. So they say it's a rainbow country but I think they are far from, <laughs> from achieving that as long as we have these divisions that are really apparent. Yeah. Do these divisions that exist make it difficult for you to do research when you're, you're trying to for example trying to form collaborations, form networks mm. with mm. people? Did these divisions hold you back there as well? No, they really didn't hold me back. There are these divisions and they create inner circles. But if you break through, yeah, like I, I managed to break through. I had white uh, friends. I also had black South African friends. Yeah, so you really need to know <laughs> to have the skills to break into them. Breaking into these social groups isn't easy, and the academic system in South Africa doesn't offer much support for many of those who have been affected by apartheid. But I don't know much about South African universities or the infrastructural systems that have been put in place. So I asked Liesl Frick, the director of and an associate professor in the Centre for Higher and Adult Education at Stellenbosch University in, Thasa- in South Africa, to give me a brief overview of what the infrastructure is like at South African universities. In the past and up until the present, doctoral education follows a kind of Oxbridge model where the It's mostly PhDs and by research only. We do not have the same system as in North America where you have credit-bearing coursework as part of your doctorate. Though you might do courses, they they don't really count within your doctorate. So uh, what is different in South Africa and the rest of Africa to, for instance, North America and many European countries is that we do not have an so-called overproduction of PhDs and a lot of PhDs still get absorbed into the academic sphere. So when we have debates around different career pathways we are always saying yes that's a really good idea and we buy into the idea but at the moment there's not what we would say is a saturation Although academic positions are limited, a lot of the people who are doing doctorates are actually already staff members at universities, which also tells you another um, issue that we have, at least in South Africa, the majority of the students at PhD level would be part-time students. More than 60% of the students registered for doctorates in South Africa are part-time students. This creates a problem when it comes to finding funding, especially when you're from a black South African background. And as a result of apartheid, black South Africans weren't allowed to access secondary or tertiary levels of education at the time. Now, this means that only now are they entering the system and thus are much older. And this causes an issue when looking for PhD funding, says Puleng Motswane, a doctoral student at Rhodes University in South Africa. Those challenges also contribute to the fact that we can't complete a PhD in three years, where in natural sciences the funding is for three years, or even maybe in 
four years as part-time students. We always go, the average is five years that for is, us. That is a challenge. I, mm. There's no flexibility in the funding system to, to accommodate that? No flexibility at all because for you to get funding, you have to be under 40. And with the dynamics of, our, of the country, we are all above 40. Is very few people who are under 40 who can access that funding. With us, then the other issue with the fund would be that, no, you have a full-time job. The funding is only for people who are studying full-time because with us, we have full-time jobs and we are just part-time students. So the funding also doesn't accommodate us unless it's a funding for a project that is received by the supervisor. Then it would be a project researching this topic, also given time, but the funding still is limited. But due to the nature of the natural sciences, there is a bit more funding available, says Ronel Stein, another PhD candidate from Rhodes University. Obviously, you can't, some natural uh, sciences, you can't do part-time study. You have to be there. You have to, it's like a job. But, and, and the funding is very competitive. Um, there is more for the STEM sciences. There is more funding um, that will give you three years' worth of um, living expenses and a stipendium and whatever, and your research costs are, are covered because it's the lab. But those do come with strict um, agendas from the funder, so often those are very, it's already delimited. It's, so it's not exploratory research. These, you know, we would like to know which yeast is going to make better wine, and therefore you will study this strain of yeast and you will study that strain of yeast, and that's how it works. So the, the, the idea that the, the PhD is you know, more exploratory, that, that we probably don't have as much in the, in the natural sciences. Jonathan, Liesel, Ronell and Puleng are all researchers in higher education practices in South Africa and are all advocating for change in the infrastructure of doctoral education, for equal opportunity, for increased supervision, for increased financial support for all doctoral researchers. But making changes is difficult, as Jonathan Janssen argues. There are huge sociological issues, and the way to address that, I have argued, is to make sure, first of all, that you have a six-year PhD as opposed to forcing people to do it in three or four years. Secondly, to make sure that the training takes people through the step, you know, in, in, a, in a sort of lockstep way as opposed to simply the individual, the old British model that we still use I think with a PhD and it's a huge mistake, which is one-on-one supervision if you show up, okay? Um, and so, and, and the other dimension of that is to have a cohort model, is to take 20 students. Students, in my experience, do much better when they're learning with other people at the doctoral level. Uh, and they, you know, and interestingly, I think women do even better than, than men in this regard. There's an openness, there's a sharing, there's a less of a competitive streak, you know. And people really do well when there's a cohort model over an extended period of time with really, really good supervision and full funding. So you almost have to fund those older students at a level beyond which you'd fund a bright, you know, 22-year-old going into a, a genetics laboratory, you know, uh, uh, etc. So, yeah, we have to account in the funding model, but also in the, the doctoral design, uh, we have to account for those sociological realities which, which are real. Now, Ronel Stein says that making changes doesn't actually have to take an inordinate amount of time or money. 
given resource-poor environments, given inequalities, also between institutions. There are huge discrepancies. What can we do within those contexts to make it better? So, for example, more collaboration uh, between institutions, between academics themselves to assist one, one another. And this sort of idea of of really being aware of what the challenges are for a new generation of PhD scholars who perhaps haven't been accommodated within our systems. And those don't necessarily cost money. It has to do with flexible approaches and being explicit about our needs. So I would frame it that way, that there is a lot that we can do. There is a lot of potential. There's a lot of good within our institutions, very well-resourced institutions. And it's a matter of finding ways to uh, to use that to transform the systems. You know, I think you can do it in the present. I don't think one has to wait for, for a distant future. I really do believe that in certain professions it should be possible to design the programs in such a way that you accommodate working mothers, for example. And, you know, this goes not just to the big structural changes, but simple things. I, as a vice chancellor, for example, I, I had established the first uh, lactation rooms ever at a South African university, just so that a working mother who also studies late at night is able to, you know, uh, provide for a child. It's, 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 it's a complex of, of, of yes, organizational, uh, yes, design, yes, psychological and emotional and other kinds of support systems that enable students to get, to get through. Having said all of that, I also do think there's a certain resilience because South Africans are particularly good at crying foul, you know, the way an Italian soccer player dives, you know, in a competitive soccer match. And I'm not saying these aren't real problems, but there's also something called resilience that you have to develop in students that says, you know, I'm going to get this PhD, and, and damn it, I don't care what else happens, but I'm going to do that. If my, the biggest reason for success in a PhD, in my experience in South Africa, is the determination of that person. This resilience extends beyond academic achievement. And when Charity Kumbe started out at the University of Pretoria, she noticed a big divide between the different groups of people. And as we heard earlier, as we heard earlier, but she's a testament to Jonathan's statement of being determined to make changes, to make a difference, to be resilient. The basic thing is to accept that we are all human beings and we are all seeking a common goal. We all want education, we want to, to be successful and so... For me, I didn't see that as a barrier. I saw it as an opportunity, for example, to learn other people's culture. So we are different. We should celebrate our diversities. And then we should not be scared. It's about trying. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.